thinking of starting a podcast? Well, try Anchor. It's free, easy to use, and its creation tools allow you to record and edit directly from your phone or computer. It'll even take care of distribution for you with a single tap so you can be heard on platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Also, Anchor is the only place you can publish video podcasts directly to Spotify. Man, you can even make money using Anchor in a couple of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. It's truly everything you need in one place to make a podcast. So make sure to go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Welcome to another edition of the It's Cavalier podcast. As always, it's your boy Mac. Joining me today, as always, is my friend and co-host, Corey Walsh of Fear the Sword, along with guest for tonight, right down Euclid's, Evan Damrell. Fellas, how are you doing? Evan, I'm coming to you first, man. How are you doing? I told you guys before we got on, it's a little warm out, but I'm hanging in there. <laughs> you know, it's summer as a as a big guy. It's just, you know, the heat gets you after a little while, but... Hey, it uh, it makes my gym plane more worth it because I can just sweat it off even when I'm not working out. I feel you. Summer to me is the worst season of the year. That's my opinion. <laughs> I don't know how you guys feel, but it is by far my least favorite season. Corey, how are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. I'm not a summer hater like Mac, but like Evan, I'm also <laughs> in that uh, big boy heat wave struggle right now. <laughs> Big so, boy heat well, wave. Hashtag I'm, I'm personally not a summer fan myself either, so I'm with Mac on this one. I'm more of a fall guy. And yes. then I like winter for the first few weeks. I appreciate snow <clears throat> up until Christmas and when the holidays are over. And then after that, I'm just like, all right, it can just be a little warmer, not as dreary, and then just let's get the spring. And then and then I get I get sick of the heat again. I, I don't know. I, I tell people all the time, hey, I choose to live here, but I also at the same time would rather – not be anywhere else so it's a little bit of column a column b yeah yeah uh that's that's really how i feel so that's a great way to start off the real talk episode with a real talk in regards to the uh the seasons of the year because it is hot as hell in most places i'm getting tired of the summer <laughs> uh but away from that let's head right into cavaliers so i told you what this was going to be man i'm keeping a real Corey. Uh, and you've probably seen some of my rants over the last couple of days. <laughs> yes, Carter, we're that bored. Uh, we gotta, we we gotta keep it real in regards to this. So I'm gonna hit you with the doozy right out of the gate. Rarely, in my opinion, has there been a player so polarizing as Colin Sexton. I mean, whenever you hear the name Colin Sexton, it really just a nice conversations across the board on both ends, whether or not people, what his value is, how, uh, what is importance to the Cavs is things of that nature. Uh, but when we really look at this guy, we're talking about a player who came in with literally nothing, literally a, a terrible roster, terrible roster. His first two seasons in the league came into a very poor situation. Guy who's consistently improved, at least on an individual standpoint, from a points production. Um, and if you want to throw in a couple of other categories there, from assists, playmaking, things of that nature, the defense um, is is a ways away. But the point, it, by and large, is that we have seen him improve. This guy went from 16.7 points uh, from year one to 20.82 from year two, uh, 20.8 to 24.3 between year two and year three. And then obviously you had the statistical decline last year in 11 games, which in my opinion should be taken with a gargantuan uh, grain of salt. But again, this just brings me back to the point that this man is very polarizing. So Evan, I got to go to you first. You are the guest. Honestly, because I, for the life of me, have tried to figure out what the hell this guy's best fit with this current core is, this current roster, the way it's constructed. What is his best fit with the team as currently constructed? See, that's a tough question because, like you said, you you can look at last year's stats and how the Cavs are kind of currently constructed last season. You have Garland, Mobley, and Allen kind of as your pseudo big three or just maybe like your three main pillars on offense and especially defense with how J.B. Bickerstaff operates this team. And 
Colin stats definitely looked off. If like you just analyze those 11 games worth of metrics, like he played less minutes than Ricky Rubio. He was finding his spot off ball predominantly because they're putting the ball in Rubio's hands and Garland's hands in order to make the offense click. And it, it just became tricky to kind of figure it out. But like you said, before the season, when he had the ball in his hands a little bit more, when he was given an opportunity to operate and attack and score and succeed, you could really see like, okay, this is a guy that the Cavs definitely hit on with the eighth overall pick. How many moons ago it was at this point, just time feels relative with how these last few years have gone. But it's tricky to see what his fit is if you just base it off last season. But I think just the way the Cavs are constructed, you could continue to go small with that smaller backcourt with Garland and Sexton as your starting group. If you want Sexton to come off the bench and you want to stick with a bigger lineup by putting Levert next to him or even Ochai Abaji if you want to just get real weird with it. But I think there is a path for Colin Sexton to succeed because when you watch the Cavs last season, especially after he went down, when the offense really stalled out and bogged down, especially when they're playing good defensive teams, whether it was like Miami or Milwaukee or just any team that had length or just found a way to frustrate Darius Garland, you needed a guy to get pressure off of him, especially from opposing defenses. And you watch Colin Sexton kind of coaching up these guys at the end of the bench and just, you know, hyping up people during timeouts and things like that. You look at him and say, man, if only he was out there because he'd be the perfect bomb that's just kind of going to heal this burn that the Cavs are dealing with right now. <laughs> and that's just kind of where I'm at with him is I don't know his exact fit in the full offensive scheme, but at least I can tell you he will get you a bucket. Um, my co-host Chris Manning did write a good article about this for Fear the Sword where if Sexton wants to take the next leap offensively, if he uses his physicality and strength to get to the free throw line more, that makes him a much more potent threat offensively and Chris kind of is a trendsetter here and he was right. Colin started doing that more and it became much more easy for him to just rack up points whenever he just wanted to attack the basket like that. Cause teams have to respect his ability to pressure the rim, but his overall fit is just tricky for me to figure out because like you said, take last year with a huge grain of salt. He was trying to find his fit in this just new offensive system. It's like the first full true year under JV Baker staff, especially because the COVID year was just so weird for everybody that I want to give him more runway and benefit of the doubt if he does come back because let's be frank he's a free agent technically speaking right now he could come back during training camp or something like that but for now we don't know what his future exactly is with this team but i want to give him the benefit of the doubt because this team has kind of found its identity without him on the floor and now it's a lot easier for him to find his way and for the coaching staff and the team to help acclimate him into things because they're a lot more comfortable playing big and playing with this big three they've kind of put together so quickly and organically and we'll kind of see it evolve as the season goes on grant like again if he is with cleveland but you know i'm hoping he will be and then you just kind of figure out the next steps from there and hopefully it works out because like i said you watch him last season when they're bogged down and just keeping it real with you guys, like the, the Cavs really could have used Colin Sexton. I think he wasn't going to be the guy who gave them maybe 10 plus more wins at the end of the day, but he was going to probably help them push them over the edge at times, especially towards the end of the season, when things got tight to maybe avoid the play in tournament or maybe clinch the game against Atlanta or beat Brooklyn somehow in Brooklyn as well. Like there were paths the Cavs probably could have had an easier time down the stretch. And that's where Colin would have been key for them. And I can go off on Karis LeVert all I want, but we're going to focus on Collins. So <laughs> that's just kind of where I'm at with him. And I'm willing to give the coaching staff and him the benefit of the doubt to figure out what his fit is. Because, again, it's just kind of tricky to really piece it all together if you just base it on last season. That's that's completely fair. That's where I'm at. It's just like, I, for the life of me, I cannot figure out where he best fits into this newly constructed team. Like, I... I honestly do not believe we're going to see the guy who was out there given 24.3 points per game in the current setup of the Cavaliers offense, uh, just because I feel like it's going to be so spread out. But what does a great season for Colin look like next year? So, you know, with this team and and, and that's kind of where I'm at. And that's, that's mm-hmm. what has me so perplexed in regards to where he actually fits. Corey, what are your thoughts on this, man? I feel like the best version of Colin that I could imagine if he returns to the Cavs is I feel like for the majority of Colin's career, he had to be a play. He viewed himself as a play starter. Like he was the one who would initiate the offense. But as more talent is developed on this Cavs team, you now see that what this team needs to play finisher and Darius at most times last season had to be the starter and the finisher for that offense. 
And if Colin can just thrive playing more off ball, which was the huge struggle for him through 11 games, I felt like he didn't really wasn't really used to having to be the one that have to finish plays when he wasn't the one initiating all of it. And if he could really master his cutting off ball, attacking the basket that way versus taking someone ISO at the top and trying to beat him with his blazing speed, which I, I'd assume he still will have coming off the injury. I think so. Yeah. 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 And I just think like this Cavs team, it was so obvious in the playoffs that what they needed was someone that could finish plays for them. And no one else was able to do it outside of Darius. I mean, Laurie had a decent game against the Hawks and Karis had an okay game against the Hawks. I feel like no one often I, like I'm not expect Rondo was probably like the third best player in that Brooklyn game. And I don't, that's like a statement within itself. To say <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just, I feel like Colin, if you put him into either of those games, they could have had a chance, a greater chance of winning both those, if not win at least both. Cause I felt like Atlanta kind of got hot in the second half and the Cavs kind of ran out of options and Colin just adding in that extra offensive punch does a lot for this team. And it gives them more dynamic looks that they could have, especially when it feels like an aversion of the Cavs in the playoffs felt like the LeBron years where when LeBron's on the bench, the Cavs offense came to a screeching halt. And when Darius was on the bench, everyone kind of felt the same way. It was like, all right, well, we just really need to hold this offense over for this next two to three minute period while Darius is getting a breather. (laughs) The only difference is Darius isn't built like LeBron and Darius is not going to create his space off physicality. It's going to be off of his stamina, to say the least. That's that's also completely fair. And that's, you know, these are all good points in regards to section. And that's really because nobody knows what the hell is going on. Nobody knows what his fit looks like. And and when you talk to everybody on social media or just in general, Cavs fans in general, everybody seems to be divided in some form or fashion. Um, what's his contractual worth? What is his best fit? Can he close games with the starting unit? And so, you know, in, in that line of thought with that question, I did want to ask you this, Evan, uh, because mm-hmm. I've seen it suggested multiple times that Colin should start or Colin should come off the bench. Do you think it's possible for – for a guy coming off the bench, getting starters minutes, do you think for Colin, would you feel comfortable putting the ball in his hands um, in game on the line situations? Yeah, I'd feel comfortable with that. I think you, you have to give him the benefit of the doubt because his body of work speaks for itself leading up to the injury last season. I mean, let's be frank, guys. He single-handedly dismantled the Brooklyn Nets. <laughs> he did. Started <laughs> he did. in overtime like that, but – even if he's coming off the bench, let's just say he does come back. Let's say he's coming off the bench because I agree with Corey's take, and I think, Mac, you feel the same way as well, that we'll see this, a similar version of the player we saw before the injury with Colin and once he gets recovered. But you, he has to get comfortable. Like I saw the video of the dunk he attempted and made on Alabama's court, I think it was today or the other day, when he actually shot the video itself. Like, yeah, that's great, but – it, that's one-on-none situations like five on five, like full board, like that's completely different. You want him to feel comfortable. So maybe you have him come off the bench for a bit and you ease him back into the rotation. I think having Garland and Neto, who is a safe, you know, table setter of a point guard as well will help too. So, but yeah, I think just because of his ability to attack the basket and score, at least in an elite range at three levels really is a good way for the Cavs to close things out with him. And I don't see a reality where it doesn't happen because like I said, his body of work speaks for itself. Like there were plenty of times where the Cavs just gave the ball to Colin and said, okay, go make something happen. And he sometimes didn't because he's young and inexperienced or sometimes he did because he has to learn and grow in real time. And to Corey's point, like, that's the other issue too, is like this Cavs team took a dramatic leap last season. And I think if they weren't so successful, they would have had more runway for Colin to get comfortable playing off ball and doing things like that. And maybe just packaging him into a different role was a little tricky at first too, but we'll talk about that later. I'm sure. But I I feel comfortable with him closing. How about you, Mac? Do you? Yeah, I absolutely do. And, you know, I've been trying to be as clear as I can be. (laughs) Some of our listeners disagree with me. They know who they are, but uh, you know, I think that when you're talking about Colin Sexton and you're talking about closing games, it has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not he starts, right? Yeah, it, it's, it does it's not, not matter as long as you finish. 
Exactly. And so for Colin, whether he's coming off the bench or whether he's starting uh, once he's fully healthy and, you know, they ease him back in, I see no reason why you can't or shouldn't feel comfortable giving them the ball. I mean, we see him put on one hell of a performance. And like you said, he pretty much destroyed. He eliminated the uh, not so super Brooklyn Nets. So there's there's a body of work there, like you said. You know, I feel like starting nods now for like the starting five for the Cavs in particular, let's say Collins a starter. It's going to be the same case it was last year where if he starts, it's more like he's still going to be the first person that would probably get sent to the bench to then go with the unit when Darius is then off the floor. They're probably going to still probably look to spread the two of them out to to vary up their offensive sets. So it's not like the most important thing in the world that Colin Sexton starts the game for the Cavs because I don't see a situation in which that he wouldn't end it. I mean, last season when – Ricky Rubio took the the spot of second fiddle to Darius in that last few minutes of the game. But this year, I, I don't see a situation in which they would put Karis LeVert or Rokoro or Agbaji or Neto into that spot instead. That's also fair. Yeah. I I I was I was about to make a face just because I think defensively <laughs> Neto and Garland would get shredded in <laughs> possessions. Like that's that's a little tough for me. So and I like the Rallo Neto signing quite a bit. I think he's a good bridge guard until Rubio's fully healthy. But I think you have a point too where Rubio is just so hot to start the season. I don't think you could not play him at times because he was just kind of, I mean, like I said, fuck it. I don't care. Like he was just bombs away. Like he'd tell you like, no, no, no. Yes. Kind of three pointer situations where you watch him just heave him up and he makes it. But yeah, I think JB will ride the hot hand. And I think also it's just what Colin's comfort level is to start the season and then maybe ease him back into things. And like I said earlier, now that the Cavs kind of have this established dichotomy, familiarity, however you want to call it, it makes it easier for them to maybe get creative and find ways to get Colin more comfortable and up to speed on just where they're at and where they want to head to. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's completely fair to say that. And I think that's probably what Cleveland will end up doing. Um, They have a wealth of options there. They do not have to throw them out there to the wolves and say, here we go, Colin, you know, figure it out, take off from where you left off at. Uh, But in closing, in regards to Colin, I just want to ask each of you this question. Now, if you were in his shoes, because we really don't know what the hell's going on behind closed doors. We don't know what kind of offers are floating out there. All we have to live off of are what uh, what you guys report on, you know, guys like you and Fedor. Uh, But if you were in his shoes, realistically, and I'll hand this off to Corey uh, first, what would you do? I mean, if they're only willing to pay you 15 to 18 million a year this season on um, on a long term deal, are you taking that? Just honestly. I feel like as a player, you're it's when you expect one season prior to be making upwards of 20 plus million a year, and then you get your devastating injury out of the blue, even though you're not known as an injury prone player. I feel like in the back of his mind, he now has to think like this could possibly happen again. But it's really like in the case of Colin, it's it feels more like an ego type of thing for him. Like, does he have the confidence in himself that he's like, I'm just going to do a fuck it. I'm going to do a prove it year on this <laughs> one year qualifying offer and just test my waters next year because I believe in myself enough to make a difference. But that's like nice to say and all. But at the same time, it's like real life doesn't work the way that you put it out in your head. And Colin could then again, get another devastating injury, not because he's injury prone because, but because injuries are freaky and there's no rhyme or reason to why they happen. And Colin could then again, jeopardize his value. And then like the, the Dennis Schroeder thing kind of sticks in my mind as an example, not the injury prone sense, but we all thought one season prior, the Lakers offered Dennis Schroeder a a massive amount of money. And then he signs a qualifying offer. (laughs) Monumental fail. Yes. And I, I don't think there's like player wise, obviously Collins a much better player than Dennis Schroeder was at that point. But at the same time, if I was Colin, I, 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 I would probably just take the 15 to 18 that's being reported, just secure the bag now, because when that contract's up, it's not like he's at going to be past his prime. He'll probably be heading into it by the time that that contract ends. So he still is in line for another payday. This isn't the be all end all for Colin Sexton. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Corey. Um, I, I don't think it's ego necessarily. I think Colin is just, 
like you said, Mac, he's a very polarizing player, and I don't think he kind of asked for a lot of this. He's a very humble, quiet, soft-spoken kid who just kind of wants to go out and hoop and have fun. Like, he is a basketball junkie. I remember we had Larry Nance Jr. on my show once when the uh, pandemic was really kicking off, and he was just sitting at home uh, playing a lot of FIFA and uh, football manager. And we asked him, like, out of all the guys, who do you think hates this most? He's like, Colin, because I don't know what he does off the court in his spare time. He just goes home and sits <laughs> on the couch until we can go to practice the next day. So I think he could bet on himself, but I, I Dennis Schroeder is an interesting example because I had an agent and an executive kind of mention his name to me last offseason when Sexton bet on himself where injuries are just stuff you don't expect. And like Corey said, he's not an, known as an injury-prone player. He is known to take good care of his body and stay relatively healthy. And, yes, he does play physically, and there are concerns with that play style maybe resulting in more injuries. But, you know – knock on wood he's had a relatively healthy career up to this point sans the meniscal tear so if i were him it's just and this is also different for me because i'm not a professional athlete um i'm not a multi-millionaire so i'm not <laughs> staring down the gun on this but if it was me personally i would probably take find that sweet spot between the 15 and 18 million take the guaranteed money maybe lower the years like Corey suggested so like a three-year deal yeah, two or three year deal with the last year being like a player option or something like that, where let's say at least you have the back guarantee of guaranteed money. So in the event a freak injury like this does happen again, because again, you don't plan for this stuff. I don't think Colin planned on tearing his meniscus. No one did. And you kind of maybe just have that money in your back pocket. So if let's say it just becomes an issue or like maybe there's some setbacks and you don't want any of that happen. And by all reports and accounts, like he's doing well in his recovery he's progressing back to the court but at the same time maybe you want that money in your back pocket then you can also just kind of bet on yourself maybe prove you're worth more than that so either you stick with the cabs or unfortunately a lot of cases of guys who don't sign these max contracts and are restricted free agency or things like that like you can also be a pretty interesting trade chip for the cabs where the cabs could trade you to a team where you can maybe be a higher impact player or you can maybe play better to your skill sets because that team has a clearer vision for you than maybe what the Cavs do to kind of maybe circle back to our original discussion too. Like where does he fit? And that's just kind of where I'm at where Colin can bet on himself to an extent, but shorten the window a little bit so he can maybe cash out sooner. And like you said, Corey, like he's not going to be in his prime anytime soon, but maybe get some higher financial security uh, by the time you maybe hit your late twenties. You need it. I mean, coming off an injury like that, um, sure, you could go the bet on yourself route. And, you know, I've kind of toyed around in my head with what that could possibly look like. And that's why I asked the question earlier on, well, what does a good it's and a productive Because I've been asked it too. And I'm like, you can make an argument for both, like taking the qualifying offer or taking like the safer route too. Yeah, that's what's so shitty about the situation. The injury could not have happened at a worse time for both the Cavs and for Colin because they lost the chance to evaluate what he looks like with the current core, and he lost the chance to prove what he actually is worth. And so that's what makes him so polarizing. But to kind of transition on to the the lead guard here in town that – you know, most people consider Darius Garland, who just signed that, you know, historic five-year uh, extension. Question I have for each one of you, and I'm going to throw this to Evan first. Five years from now, do you think Darius will be the leader of this team, or do you think somebody else will take that mantle, somebody like Evan Mobley? I think it will be Evan Mobley. If because I'm just a I'm a firm believer in Mobley's potential because you watch Mobley operate and he looks so refined defensively and I think that's the thing is you don't see guys have that type of impact in the rookie season on the defensive side of the ball especially when they're getting all defensive consideration he got more second team votes than Jared Allen did like that's crazy because Allen is a very good defensive player in his own right and I think it could be Mobley I don't think this season we're this third season Garland had is an aberration. I hope it's just a sign of things to come. And maybe we don't see the type of nuclear level leap like we did, but maybe you see another step up and another step up because again, he's in his early twenties. You're not only paying him because you believe, Hey, you are our point guard. You are one of the faces of the franchise, like X, Y, Z. They also believe in his, in his potential and his ability to keep growing and become a better and better player. Because something that's always stuck with me with Garland is, if he played his full season at Vanderbilt, 
he could have given John Moran a run for his money as the best point guard in that draft class. Because yes, him and Jaw are completely different players. Like Jaw's much more physical. He likes to attack the basket, but like Garland had a really good third season. I mean, obviously Jaw and the Grizzlies were phenomenal, but the Grizzlies are also just overwhelmingly talented to begin with too. Yeah. So it's maybe a little bit of apples to bananas in terms of comparing those two rushers as well. But Garland, I think is worth the money. I understand maybe some people have some reservations about it, like just based if you're just basing off his third season. But again, I think the Cavs are investing in his potential because you need security at that position. And you haven't really had that since Kyrie was traded out of town for the pick that became Colin Sexton and then the pieces that Kobe Altman jettisoned across the NBA. So <laughs> that's just kind of where I'm at. And I, 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 I but I do think it's going to be Mobley because Again, defensively, he's just so talented and so gifted that he's already at such a good base level, and he's kind of so raw and unrefined offensively. But like you see the flashes, like the step back three he took against, or the crossover three he took against the Raptors, and kind of made a statement against them. And there's just kind of flashes where you see, like, okay, this this kid is different. Like it's not just the playmaking, it's the shooting potential, it's the scoring potential, it's just the myriad of ways he can be so impactful for the Cavs that I'm just like, he's not ready now, but maybe in year three i want to say when he's supposed to take that pseudo leap we'll be talking about okay like the Cavs have an overabundance of wealth at key positions but like evan moldy is now the guy to kind of take them to that next level gotcha so Corey, two questions for you bud same line of thought will darius garland still be the lead man will he be the number one in five years in two would you have given him that max uh, I can answer the second question really quickly. Yes, I would uh, have given him that max. I feel like it's when, especially when you're a team like the Cavs and you're a smaller market team, you kind of have to play the numbers game a lot. And by hitting on your draft picks, that's your best way of bringing in star level talent. Because unless LeBron James is at the gates saying, hey, guys, you want to come to Cleveland, Cleveland hasn't been that attractive of a free agent stop for a long time. And the fact that we have all stars that want to play for the Cavs that are tech, quote unquote, homegrown talent like Darius, Evan. And I, I don't know. I don't know if we're including Jared in that conversation. Probably not seeing as he was in Brooklyn, but at the same token of that, uh, I feel like I don't see him being the best player on this Cavs team in the next five years. And that's more of like a hope thing, honestly, because how many great teams do you see in the league outside of the Warriors that are their best player is a small guard that can just be a scoring machine. I mean, it's very rare for that recipe to kind of lead to success of he's of they're your best player. Like they're a great number two option at times. I think of Darius is our number two down the road to like Evan said, Evan Mobley, then that's a really good recipe for this Cavs team. But if he is the the best player for us down the road, I wouldn't expect us to be in like title contention conversations. Probably. I think we're going to be like, maybe like Utah East or something where we're always like in the playoff hunt and people think we're going to take a jump every year and you kind of do small tinkers to the roster, but I wouldn't expect us to be like a ground changing roster. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair sentiment. Uh, Five years from now, just to give my opinion on this, I do, too, believe that Evan Mobley will be that guy. Um, He's just shown too much. I mean, at his size, I mean, he has the potential to become anything. (laughs) Uh, There's a clear limit from a defensive standpoint uh, that a guard, you know, uh, like Darius Garland can give you. Um, what he can give you at that size. Evan Mobley, conversely, he's got the defense. And I think there is a defensive player of the year award somewhere in the next five years waiting for him um, with his, you know, unnatural skill set. And then on the offensive end, we still see the rawness there. But I think that it's going to come around. I mean, we've seen the third year leap from guys like Colin, guys like Darius. We're hoping to see it from Isaac Okoro. Who knows? Uh, but I think Evan Mobley, of everybody on this roster, he just screams, uh, you know, leader out on the court. I don't know from a vocal standpoint. Who knows? Evan, you would know more than us. Uh, but from <laughs> he's, a vocal he's, standpoint. He's a spoken kid. Um, <laughs> but his brother joked during lead up to summer league that he's like, yeah, I'm going to show the guys how to push some buttons. And 
kind of get him to talk more. But I, I think it's certainly telling that guys like Kevin Love and Darius and just anyone's just like, yeah, we really have to tell him like, hey, you need to speak up because I think he is such a cerebral player at times. I think he maybe assumes like, hey, everyone understands these defensive concepts. But no, he's also, like you said, like he's the eyes and ears for this team. And hey, he's also a rookie. Like you don't want to be the guy who's bossing everybody around right when you walk in. Like there's clearly a chain of command. Like this is a there's some veterans on this team. Like you got to show your respect and earn your stripes too. Yeah. And when you're talking to the champion, Kevin love, you got to make sure you come right. Um, and since we do have um, Evan Mobley on the brain here, um, Corey, I see you're chomping at the bit to ask something uh, or to say something rather to ask you to hold the question just for just a second while I ask this, because it's one of the things that I've constantly thought to myself Uh, Just being a Cavs fan and trying to be objective, my question for you is, do you think that we have overhyped Evan Mobley or have overstated his importance to the Cavs? Uh, Certainly not, (laughs) because his defensive impact is the same. Like, yes, Darius taking his jump into being an all-star guard was like a huge boost for this Cavs team. But Evan Mobley's defensive presence is what was the true needle pusher for this Cavs team to even be in the play-in games, in my opinion. He just adds so much versatility to the defensive end and covers so many liabilities for us on the court. I mean, for the past few years, the Cavs have basically been a – uh, has been a sieve defensively for teams <laughs> across the league. And even though JB is a defensive minded coach, he had no tools to really use that to his, his disposal, except for throwing rookie Isaac Okoro out there for 35 plus minutes a game, which when you have one good defender on the court, that doesn't really do anything to, sh- to show his skill set at all. So having Evan being able to play free safety essentially for the Cavs and allowing them to kind of run the big lineup that they want to. And while still smaller guards on the floor, he he really is just so important to this Cavs team and is the like you saw it when he was out. Like they still struggle to come up with lineup. You can't just throw Laurie or Kevin in for for uh, Evan Mobley and expect to even get remotely the same defensive effort at all. Because the, the Cavs bigs defensively outside the starting two are definitely not the best. And when you run Kevin and Lowry together, that's just like a funeral defensively on <laughs> Yeah, funeral's an interesting way to put it. I I do agree with that a bit, though. Like, it it was tough watching it when Mobley wasn't playing. But like you said, Corey, and you watch some of the weirdo Rocket fans are like, oh, Jabari Smith is a player that has, in a similar vein to Evan Mobley in terms of defensive impact, like, my brother's in Christ, it's summer league. Let's take it one step at a time here. But... (laughs) Let's say, hypothetically speaking, the Rockets took Evan Mobley last summer. Yes, last summer, because, again, COVID just skews everything timeline-wise. And the Cavs took Jalen Green. I think it would have been a lot more confusing. We'd be talking a lot more about Colin Sexton's fit along with Jalen Green and maybe Darius Garland as well. But I think Jalen Green had a really good rookie season, and he's going to be a really good NBA player. I think that's not that hot of a take. But... I don't think Cleveland is in the same position they were last season where they're flirting with the playing tournament because of the defensive tools Mobley gives you and how he's able to cover up so many little things. And I think if you don't have Mobley and Allen as your backline of defense, you can't start Larry Markin at the three either because Larry, traditionally speaking, isn't a three. And you watched it in the season opener when they're playing the Grizzlies where you had John Morant and Desmond Bain taking turns hunting Markin in isolation and the Cavs... <laughs> found ways to make it work a little bit better. And again, like the Cavs wouldn't be in the position they're in flirting with the playoffs, being in the play in tournament. Yes. Injuries kind of hamstrung the rest of the season all throughout the season and COVID too, but they wouldn't be in this position of Evan Mobley because he's just such an alien on the defensive end of the court because he can play free safety. He can defend on the perimeter. He can defend in the paint. He can do so many things and he looks so refined. And the biggest thing is he can defend without fouling, which is the key thing here. So he can impact the floor from start to finish. And I think that's the biggest key thing for the Cavs. And yes, like you mentioned, Corey, like Isaac Coro was your best defender at times. And he admitted like JB just told him to go out there and play hard and defend the opposing team's best perimeter player. And then now Coro has a better understanding of defensive concepts and defensive schemes and the intricacies of how bigger staff wants to run things. That's in his sophomore season. Well, we understood it right out the gates because he's just a sponge at absorbing this stuff. And he's kind of like a computer where if you just tell him how to do something, he just gets it right away. 
So he's just such a unique player and I'm, I'm bullish on his upside, but I think, yeah, maybe we do undersell his hype a little bit or maybe his just productivity. And I think that's fine too. Like let the Rockets fans be weird about it. I think the Cavs saying like, Hey, we were in the play almost, we were in the play in tournament, almost the playoffs last year while the Rockets were tanking for, well, Andy and Jabari Smith, but they're looking for Paolo Banchero or Chet Holmgren or somebody else. So like, yeah, the Rockets got a great player out of it, but the Cavs are in a really good spot and they have such a solid foundation to build off of because they got this unique player that just kind of fell into the laps at three. Okay, yeah, but Evan, if fair. you had a, the chance to choose between Christian Wood or Evan Mobley, who would you pick? <laughs> well, I'd picture Alan and Evan Mobley because the Rock <laughs> odd in that regard. But oh well, you know the the rich get richer if you're the Cavs in this case. But I'd rather have Evan Mobley than Christian Wood. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> question. You'd rather have Evan Mobley than Christian Wood. Let's be frank here. That's a hot take, Evan. I don't know. I, I don't Very know. I hopefully. Hopefully the the Mavericks fans who are diehard Christian Wood stands just don't come after me. I, <laughs> I want to sleep sadly tonight is all I'm trying to say. For the Mavs fans who thought that this was a Mavs podcast, they've been really lost for the past 35 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Um, just in that same line of thought, Corey, I'll go to you here first. Um, if you had to honestly rank the top four picks from his draft class, where would Mobley rank as of right now? <sighs> That's a good question. So it's like projecting out the class, or am I saying no? Based just off? as like purely right now, after year one, those top four picks. Where do you have Evan Mobley at right now? You can rank them right now if you want to. Yeah, I feel like the trickiest part about doing the ranking is that it's hard to determine how great a player is when they're not surrounded by equal level talent. And I would say, obviously, Barnes and Mobley were surrounded by the most talent to take advantage of their skill sets which is obviously why they were in the top two. I mean, everyone loves Kate Cunningham and thinks he's going to be a great player, but it's kind of hard when you're kind of when the Jeremy Grant show in Detroit, <laughs> where he's just trying to play his way into a new contract. I would say, I, I feel like Evan Mobley to me was the biggest difference maker of the draft class last season. And then Barnes would be number two. I, I, I wasn't as upset as everyone else was, that uh, Scotty Barnes won rookie of the year because I did feel like he was a very unique player that was perfectly fit for what Toronto needed per se. And they definitely showed ways to use him in the same way that the Cavs did. The only difference is Barnes looked flashier on the offensive end. I think in my opinion, than Evan Mobley put it and offense is sexy and it sells and you can't really sell someone on rookie of the year. Be like, do you see his defensive numbers? Like they're pretty insane. Like no <laughs> casual fan is giving, like, Oh, let me see his defensive highlights. And uh, Kate, I'd, so I think Green also struggled for a majority of the year, and I think Kate kind of struggled at points too. So I think I would probably go uh, Mobley, Barnes, Cunningham, Green. But Is if it I had four it, to one or one to four? One to four with okay. Jalen Green being last. But if I had to project them based on who I think they're going to be, I'd probably take Cade one, Mobley two. Barnes three, Jalen Green four. I think there's a lot of Jalen. How dare you? How dare you as a Cavaliers fan put Cade ahead of it? No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I mean that that makes sense, man. I, I got you, <laughs> Evan. How, how about you? I, I'm not going to say how dare you to Corey because this is a tough question for me because uh, the offensive upside definitely helped Scotty Barnes's case, especially if folks weren't watching the Cavs on a night-to-night basis, like the three of us were um, just kind of breaking down Evan Mopey's game. And like, I watched a lot of Scotty Barnes because I was a fan of his during the pre-draft process. And I think, Hey, if Cleveland took him at three instead of Mobley, like Evan Mobley would be terrifying. And that Toronto developmental system, like absolutely a monster, but Right now, I think just because Mobley had an unfortunate injury, I think that's what superseded Barnes in the rookie of the year race, too. Because again, I think a lot of people were watching the Cavs as well. Because you could also make the argument, like, hey, this guy's the top rookie because he had such a huge impact on his team as well and like contributes to winning. And like Corey said, like the Raptors have a lot of established pieces. Like they have Fred Van Fleet, they have Pascal Siak, and they have OG Ananobi, they have Nick Nurse, who's like one of the best coaches in the league. Like they have all these pieces in place that 
really supported and complimented Scotty Barnes and like just covered up from some of his deficiencies, especially on the perimeter. But if you had to ask me right now, one through four, probably be Mobley, Barnes, Cunningham, Green, like Corey said. But I think Mobley will be better than Cunningham long term because I've talked to folks who do a lot more draft stuff than I do. And they said if Cade wasn't in last year's draft class, they think Mobley would have been the consensus top pick. Like he would have ended up in Detroit. And I think that makes sense because especially I think Mobley believed he was the best player in the class because he worked out for the Pistons privately. And so I think long-term you're going to have Mobley Cunningham, but it's a very close like 1A, 1B situation. And then after that, Barnes and Green were like, I like Jalen Green. I think he's a very, very good player. And I like Scotty Barnes. I think he's a very, very good player. But just Mobley as a guy who watches him, I'm just like, this guy has it. Like he he could be the guy for the Cavs. And I think this is an argument I made for the longest time a lot on Cavs. Like the Cavs were missing that guy who could, they could just kind of make the center of their entire identity on both ends of the floor. Like Mobley has that potential and so does Cade because he's a bigger point guard and like bigger point guard scratch a certain itch for me when it comes <laughs> to types, but they're both fun. And I think the fact that you can make a case for a lot of these guys being the top player long-term, and this is just from a basketball fan standpoint, like it really puts in perspective how good of a place the league is going to be in long-term too. Like these dudes are so talented. I just, I'm going to be biased and be honest. Like this, maybe it's the name, first name, having this first name situation here too, but I think Evan Mobley's probably, <laughs> if you ask me five years from now, who's the best player from this class, it could, it's probably going to be Evan Mobley. I'm right there. I, my personal ranking right now is the exact same as both. It's Evan, Cade, um, <clears throat> Scotty, and then Jalen Green. I mean, we're really down on Jalen Green, huh? <laughs> It's not that I'm down on Jalen Green. I just feel like he's a more generic, like he is more resembling of a lot of other types of players in the league. And I think the other three offer unique archetypes that we don't have as many of in the league. And that's more of a needle pusher to me than what Jalen Green provides. That's a fair argument. It's like needle pusher and rare archetypes is a thing where like Barnes and Mobley, I don't know what they're going to end up being like five years from now, but that's what makes them so enticing to me. And then Cunningham's just a bigger point guard. And like I said, like, if you can be above six four, six five, six six in that range and you're playing point and you're so lethal and impactful on the floor. And like if you can learn to play off ball, like the Pistons are in such a good place long term. And like I'm envious of their situation just from a team building aspect. Where like they do a lot of weird stuff, but they're in They took some healthy. good steps this offseason. Oh, they took some really good steps, but they're gonna suck next season because they're <laughs> players. But I think that's the end game here too for them. But they're going to be fun long-term, and I think it's – I mean, hey, at least the Cavs-Pistons games will actually mean something for the first time in forever, too, because, like, the Pistons have been god-awful for the longest time, and they've been chasing ghosts, and now they're kind of building this the right way, as most Midwest teams probably should. Mostly organically, yep. Hopefully Killen Hayes takes that next leap, am I right? <laughs> That'd be the needle pusher <laughs> the Pistons are looking for. Oh, man. Uh, moving right along here to some of the younger guys on the roster. Um, Evan Mobley's young, but <laughs> um, we saw Ochai Abaji suit up in summer league, and he he seemed as advertised. Um, although, you know, if you watch our reaction video <laughs> to the draft, um, people might think we're not Abaji fans, but we definitely are. Um, and he showcased a lot. You know, most of what scouts and analysts alike were saying, he he, he showcased, by and large, his ability to knock down the three ball in a myriad of ways, whether that be coming off of screens, um, off the dribble, maybe off the trail as a trailer. Uh, even his defensive chops were on display. I think he had he notched five steals in four games uh, to go along with per game averages of uh, 15 points per game, 4.8 rebounds, and he ended up shooting. 37 and a half percent from three-point range which uh a great sign i mean and to take that a step further if you guys want to hear something crazy i did a little research here um and i know this is just summer league so we have to take it with a grain of salt but it took and we're talking about the Cavs' most recent lottery picks here starting with colin sexton um in 2018 it took colin sexton 20 games to reach the amount of attempts that Abaji just attempted in summer league, which was, I believe, 32. It took Colin 20 games to get to that number. It took 
Garland, 10 games, which is crazy. Uh, took Mobley, 18. It took, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it took Isaac Coral 12. And so to me, the craziest part here is that having a guy who can go out there and just throw the three ball up, just shoot from range. Very, very, very exciting. Uh, something that the Cavs fans, um, you know, myself in general, have been clamoring for. You know, whether you whether or not you consider Ochai a wing or a two, long term, whatever, what have you, there was a clear need for this guy. So um, just want to ask you from uh, day one, Evan, what do you think his best role should be? Well, you, you saw a little bit of it during summer league where you're asking him to play predominantly off ball is either a cutter or a guy who runs off floppy sets or hammer plays or even off elevator door plays like the Spurs like to run as well. Like there's different ways you can use him. And I think obviously he's a rookie and he's the 14th overall pick. And historically speaking, like the 14th overall pick isn't a high impact guy. Like you need to give them a runway to grow and develop. And I think maybe taking the more NBA ready prospect and Abaji shortens that runway a little bit, but there's going to be a learning curve. There's going to be times where like defenses are going to be honest on him and kind of pr- focus on him on the, on the perimeter. Like you mentioned, he was <laughs> really good in summer league in terms of just three point shooting, but I think he unlocks a lot of things for the Cavs when he's fully comfortable and fully acclimated because he provides you that spacing, whether it's at the two or the three. And I know we can have this debate, but the Cavs are also a team that play positionless. Like they're playing Larry Markkinen, who's a seven-footer at the three, and J.D. Bickerstaff kind of use them as big, smalls, and wings. So I think you can kind of put Abaji in that wing archetype a little bit where you ask him to play on the perimeter, you're asking him to play defense. And like you said, he, he showed up as advertised. I think – Mike Garrity saying if you give him an ounce of daylight, he's going to make the three. And I think more than anything, if you're the Cavs, like, yes, there were times he had some bad attempts. So there's times maybe like he didn't look as sharp as he did during other instances in summer league. But again, these are glorified scrimmages. And I think you want your rookie taking as many threes as possible to get him comfortable one from the NBA arc. And also just within like your offensive flow and the offensive system. So when the games actually count and they actually matter and you have a, and this is no disrespect to like a Marcilla or RJ Nemhard and everybody else on the roster. But like when you have Darius Garland, you have Evan Mobley, when you have Jared Allen on the floor with you, like Abaji's going to unlock stuff for this team. And even if Colin Sexton is back out there, or when Karis LeVert's out there, two guys who kind of thrive more at the basket than they do on the perimeter, like having Abaji out there is going to keep defensive on it, defense is honest, and then create more lanes for those guys to slash and attack the basket. And it's also going to create more ways for defenses who maybe have to sag off and maybe either, I wouldn't say double team Abaji, but maybe pay attention to him if he's floating on the perimeter or if like Garland attacks the basket, he's an easy kickout option. Or like you said, Mac, he's a trailing option. Like I think he does does so many interesting things that like right now he is prepackaged as an NBA ready player, but you can kind of see his fit and how the Cavs want to utilize him during summer league. And that's what stood out to me. Like, yeah, there's times where the shot wasn't falling, but he kept shooting it and you want him to feel confident, confident and comfortable. And also it shows the coaches saying like, Hey, we're okay. If you maybe not making the shot, go back out there and shoot it again. So like, you know that he has the faith of the coaching staff as well. So like, if he has a bad night, it's not going to be like a huge thing for them because the Cavs are so overwhelmingly loaded at certain positions. And there might be nights Abaji doesn't play, period. And like that's totally understandable. But when he does play and when he is comfortable, I think he's going to unlock a lot of stuff for them. And it's it's a fun thought exercise to think like, oh, there's a lot of creative ways that the Cavs could utilize a a, a shooter. <laughs> like the for the first time in a while, they have <laughs> a true shooter on their roster that like he isn't as streaky as Mark and sometimes love can be, but like he's also at a different position than those two as well. He's not a shooting forward. It's more of on the perimeter in the two, three spot, maybe even some four. If you want to go super small through the Cavs. Yeah. Kind of like a, a, a J.R. Smith ish, uh, not to that last point, but um, he's a little, a lot more consistent than that. Um, how many minutes do you think you'll see on a nightly basis? See, this one's tough because there's so many guys ahead of him right now, but 
if you're saying 15 to 18 minutes to start the season and maybe you cap him out at 20, especially if the Cavs, when they start to get healthy and Rubio comes back, you can kind of kind of consolidate your rotation. If you extend Sexton, maybe that makes Levert a bit more expendable and you can target a position of need elsewhere as well. I think there's ways to pave a path for Abaji to develop, but I think maybe 18 to 20 is his cap. And then if he's also not, if he's getting a lot of DMP, P coaches decisions like he could end up with a charge too and he could be getting 30 minutes a night down there where he can just be that would surprise me geez louise yeah if he's not playing a lot it wouldn't surprise me if you're saying like okay we really want this kid to feel comfortable if you can get him actual floor burn over at the wolstein center right down the street like i think that's a viable path too and i think that that's why they brought the charge up here too and there's no disrespect of being sent down to the g league to kind of rehab and develop and that's how the Cavs kind of want to utilize the charge but if he's fully comfortable and he does come out as advertised and as, as you hope, I think 20 minutes is his cap. And then, but you have to let him earn it and you have to let him just kind of earn those stripes to begin with, because that's just how the Cavs operate too. Like, again, there's a lot of dudes ahead of him and these dudes are more established than him. And these guys are probably going to be fighting just as hard as him to keep their spots in the rotation too. So it, it makes it a fun battle. It's healthy. Competition is always a good thing, but let's just say 18 to 20 is my guess. Um, Evan, do you feel like there's a chance that there? What do you think the likelihood of seeing all like Colin, Karras, Okoro, and Lavert all getting minutes at the end of the season, or do you think it's more likely that one of them is going to get shipped out before the trade deadline? Because I just don't. I think there's too much similarities going on right now between that shooting guard position in particular. I think that's a fair argument. Um, I don't think a core is going to get shipped out. My Matt Moore, um, hardwood perioxidism. I don't know how to pronounce the last part of his Twitter name, but <laughs> the action news network has sniffed around and found out just through other sources. The Cavs aren't like actively looking to shop a core right now, which I think is the right argument. It's a dude on his rookie scale contract. who's a very good perimeter defender. And then you may be seeing irons at his works offensively, but uh, it's it's tough because I have questions on whether or not you can have Sexton and Levert sharing the floor often on offense because I think that's just a tough ask of like Darius or Ricky or Raul or, or sorry Raul or any of those guys to kind of just get everyone going and the things like that. But I think there's paths and scenarios where like you have one of Garland or Rubio and then next to Abaji and then one of Levert or Sexton. And then if you want to throw a Coro in there too, is like a defensive lockdown. If you want to get really weird with it, sure. Why not? But you have to see what the flow of the offense and the defense is. But I, I just, it's tough because like you said, there's a lot of, minutes to go there's only so many minutes to go around and there's a lot of mouths you have to feed in this offense and on this defense too and like there's only so many guys you can play like the Cavs can't go 11 12 13 players deep at the end of the day like 9 10 is probably their cap and Chris Manning and I my co-host have like had this debate a lot both on the air and off the air like you're unless your name is Darius Garland Evan Mobley because I can't say Mobley because there's two of them now and Jared Allen like you're not you don't have a set spot in this rotation like kevin love could not play some nights too if he's just an abject disaster defensively for the Cavs, just can't use him his shot isn't called <laughs> so like there's gonna be interesting ways and i don't envy jb bigger staff to have to kind of do the internal calculus to figure this out but i don't know i think is my answer to your question Corey. <laughs> Like there's just a lot of guys who you can make an argument for all four of those guys to say like, okay, Sexton deserves minutes. Abaji deserves minutes. Akoro deserves minutes and Levert deserves minutes. And yeah, you can consolidate this a little bit. Maybe you ship out Levert cause he's an expiring contract and you kind of trim the fat a little bit on just like, let's just say your two guard rotation it makes it easier, but it's tough to find minutes for all those guys at the same time. And I don't envy the coaching staff for having to maybe figure it out. Yeah, the tricky part with Karis Levert, especially, is that let's say like he, I've, we're shipping him out. It's because it's obviously not working out, which means mm-hmm. his trade value is going to be a lot lower. And at the same time, this Cavs team, like you said, has too many mouths to feed in general. So it's not like we should trade Karis for another player that's just yeah. going to once again create a logjam in a different position, barring unless there's a huge injury on the roster or something. But it's also the Cavs are also not in the position where they should be accumulating draft picks as well. So Karis kind of puts this team into like an awkward logjam, which is kind of ironic considering he was brought to alleviate the problems of Ricky Rubio's injury or Colin Sexton's injury and Ricky Rubio's, I guess, to an extent. 
truly a gift and a curse, um, in my opinion. Mostly a curse. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I mean, it could be worse. He could be on a long-term deal. <laughs> uh, you know, so, I mean, that's the way I'm looking at it. If if they feel like it's not working out or there are just too many mouths to feed, they can try and capitalize on them and ship them out of town, um, bring something in for another area of need on the roster, though I don't know what that would actually be. Um, but... Uh, let's go ahead and move on here a little bit. And so I, I kind of I saw this the other day, and I just wanted to get each one of your opinions on it. So we know the NBA as a whole, I feel like, continuously gets better. Um, you know, there's more talent now than ever, I feel. And in the Eastern Conference, we've seen a lot of shifting here uh, with you know, just in this offseason. So, Corey, I'm going to go to you first. Realistically, do you think – do you consider the Cavs among the six best teams in the Eastern Conference at the moment on paper? Uh, on paper, probably not. But it's so hard to play this prediction game, honestly, because teams that we think are going to be really good now so, – Here you go. You got, you got – do you think they're better than the Bucks, the Heat, the Celtics – the Raptors, the 76ers, the Hawks. That's six right there. Do you think they're better than any of those uh, of those teams? And then yeah, now if you want to throw Brooklyn in there because we don't know what the hell's happening, um, they're, that's, that's seven. Do you think they are good enough or better than any of those teams? I think they're better than the Hawks, and I think that they're probably equal, in my opinion, with the Raptors. But outside of those two, I think Brooklyn's going to honestly have Durant and Kyrie this year. I think it's too hard for them to find the trades that they're looking for, and they're just going to let Kyrie's deal expire and then try to reshuffle the cards at that point. But, yeah, no, I don't – I'd say they're a borderline top six team. I think they're going to fight to be out of the play-in, but at their worst, they'll probably still be in the play-in, probably winning the play-in series, though is probably my expectation for this Cavs team this upcoming season. It's an interesting thought exercise again, because Chris and I have talked about this too. So there's a clear pecking order of like Milwaukee, Miami, give them the benefit of the doubt. They're always just a wild (laughs) card. Uh, Philadelphia, especially just with, I like some of the offseason moves they've made, but we'll see how that goes because James Harden in the playoffs is a different beast in itself. But it's those three at the top, I really, and Boston as well, okay, Boston too. So those four at the top, the Eastern Conference. And then I think the next group is the Nets are a bit of a variable. They could jump up and be the fifth best team, or they can completely bottom out and not be in this conversation. So let's just put them at five. It's just like that medium wild, medium wild card team. Then after that, you have teams like Cleveland, you have teams like Toronto, you have teams like Chicago, like teams that have fair questions about them. Like the Cavs are young and inexperienced. Can they repeat and build off the success they had last season? The Bulls are a team that cannot stay healthy, whether it's Lonzo Ball or Pat Williams. And like, I like Vucevic, but I have questions of him being your starting center long term. And then with Toronto, what is going to go happen to them? Are they going to kind of consolidate pieces and go get Durant? Because if they do that, they jump up into that top five conversation, in my opinion. But they're a bit of a wild card, too. But if for now, they're in that conversation with like Chicago, Cleveland, and those two as well. And then Brooklyn, too, just depending on the situation there. Because it could be weird, too. Like Kyrie and Durant could come back and could still be like just an objectively odd season for them, like last year was. So I think they are or have the ability to be like fourth or fifth in the Eastern conference. It's the end of the day. But again, we can't predict or look into a crystal ball and say, ah, yes, three teams are the best teams in the Eastern conference. So there's a lot of like, cause again, the Cavs were projected to win 26.5 games last year over unders and they were almost in the playoffs. So again, we can't predict this stuff, but I think, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt that this last season wasn't a fluke and that they're going to build off the success because they aren't the Knicks. They have a lot of young talent that's just going to continue to get better. And also the Hawks as well. I think the Hawks should be in that conversation too with um, Toronto, Cleveland, Chicago as well, like where there are fair questions about them. I like the DeJounte Murray acquisition, but they want to get rid of John Collins for whatever reason. And when they inevitably do, I wonder what they should get rid of him for. Um <laughs> There's questions about uh, DeAndre Hunter long term with him. I know Jay Fisher reported like he wants something north of 20 million that the 
uh, Kelvin Johnson extension in San Antonio kind of set the table for that as well. So it's interesting, but I think the Cavs are just on the outside looking at it like that top four or five echelon, but they're in the next pack, which is a pretty good place to be, all things considered. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, the NBA as a whole got better. I think the Eastern Conference is going to be very, very competitive. Um, Who knows how many wins it'll take to be in the top six. Um, You know, I I hope the playing game is not where Cleveland finishes at next season, but it's certainly possible uh, given the wealth of teams in the East that uh, could be vying for for those six spots. Um, Before we head out of here today, guys, I just – Obviously, we've all seen the new jerseys that have been dropped and, you know, public reception to them is kind of it's been generally positive. But I know there have been some complaints. So I do want to get uh, each one of your takes on the specific jerseys. Uh, Let me pull them up real quick just to get them on the screen. But, um, you know, when when we were talking about the, you know, the updates here. So, Evan, I'll go to you first. Is there any one of these in particular that stands out to you? Like, man, that that's that's awesome. That's an awesome jersey. I like the white one a lot. I'm a sucker for the basket V and also just the uh, through lines and like the kind of 90s aesthetic they have with the, uh, I guess, wavy jersey, you want to call it. But like the white one sticks out to me. Um, I, I like you said, I'm I like the jerseys. I think simplifying less is more is a better thing. And just compared to what they were wearing last season, like we've talked about this in the free of the sword slack a little bit, like anything is an improvement on what they were wearing. <laughs> Why does everybody feel that? Like, I want to know, like, just give me your honest take on that. It was think were it's they that lot. shitty. No, it's just a lot going on at once. <laughs> I just like Nike try. It's a weird thing where Nike's just kind of dropped the ball on a lot of these rebrands and redesigns, and now they're like, oh, we really messed up the Browns uniforms. Let's just give them their old uniforms back. Or <laughs> just kind of taking notes from their history and just kind of pulling examples from that. Like, you can't tell in the image, but like on the, on the uh, piping, on the um, armholes around the neck, like it's similar to those like 2016 era Cavs uniforms. And maybe I'm a sucker for those too because that's what they wanted. But those were pretty simple too. And yeah, I'm, I understand maybe why people were a little underwhelmed by it, but I think when they described it as monochromatic, when I was having it like described to me and just like shown to me, like, these are what they're going to do next season and beyond. Like it's certainly that, but the white one sticks out just because it's just a variation of colors. And also just, it really pops because you have the gold, which is more of a traditional gold instead of mustard yellow. You have like that metallic finish on the Cavs logo and on the numbers. Like it's sharp, it pops. And I'm willing to kind of wait and see how it looks on the court too. But mm-hmm. at least my initial review, like the, the white kits or I think they're called icon or association. I can't remember, but like those stick out the most to me. And I like those a lot. Is there anything that they could have done differently here? Like, like specific because like the most of the complaints that I've heard about these are, uh, are the one in the middle. Um, I've I've heard a lot of complaints in regards to that. So that's maybe I just don't have taste. That's it. <laughs> but Corey, I, I know you're. Um, I know you were kind of on the fence about these when I first asked you about them. Upon them being released, give me your honest take now that you've had like a day to take them in. Yeah, when Mac was referencing, or uh, when Evan was referencing the Fear of the Sword group chat, I was the person who said I really couldn't get any worse than what it was. I hated those <laughs> uniforms with a passion. I uh, I could not stand those old uniforms. I refused to buy any variation of that uniform. I would only buy the the third alternative uniform every was year. Was it for the reasons that Evan mentioned, or you just like completely just disliked them? I completely disliked them. There was nothing about that uniform that you could tell me I, I genuinely enjoyed. And I had such low expectations for what I was hoping these jer- oh, the bar was so low for me to be remotely <laughs> excited about these jerseys. And I'm at the point where I'm just like, they're all right. <laughs> like that. I, I, I personally am getting kind of sick of every brand out there being like, what if we take our logo that people liked and make it so simple that it looks like zero artistic effort was put behind it. And we just go with that. Not saying that that that's what these are necessarily, but it's in that. That's exactly what you're saying. It's just like, it's like, they're so saying, man, I, I, I like, I like the white uniform a lot. 
I wish that that same lettering applied to all the uniforms. That's fair. honestly, I think they had a good thing going. I also like everyone else on Twitter. I'm super confused why the Cliffs logo in the white uniform isn't modified to the color. So oh. explain to me. It doesn't oh. pop if it's in gold on the white as well. And they're like, oh. this is the opportunity we have to show the full color for the Cliffs logo. And it pops the best on the white one. Okay. Gotcha. That does make that a lot sense. of sense. It, it, makes sense it, the first it also might be like something in the contracts too, in terms of like the Jersey sponsorship agreement or something like that. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> the paying to put their thing on it wants it to be shown. Well, that does make sense. <laughs> I, right. I saw a lot of people hating on the black uniform too, which honestly I think it it does look pretty nice. I, I feel I like that's the I, best one in my opinion. So I would change one thing with it. I would take the front numbers off because it just looks a little cluttered down there, and you just have the C there, and or you center the numbers underneath the C, and you let that just be the statement piece, and it kind of sucks, I guess, that the Cavs. I mean, I'm. The 2016 championship is, I will say, like one of the best moments of my life um, as a fan of this team. But it sucks they had to win them in those uniforms because if they won it in the, the wine sleeve jerseys, in the sleeve jersey, I think we'd be having a different conversation. But I, I like them all. I've had time to like look at them and ponder them, and like it all works. And the Cavs just had so many colors, so many logos, so many branding things just going on all at once that they kind of simplified and consolidated. And that's just kind of where I'm at, where I'm like, okay, you have a good baseline to work with. And now you can get funky and weird with it for your city edition Jersey. Cause you get a new one every single year. And like, there's a lot of different things you can pull from, from Cleveland. Like there's the Metro parks, there is playhouse. There is just Cleveland versus the world as a mantra in general. You could, team up with destination cleveland again like there's a lot of different ways you could approach this and explore this and that can always be like the fun obscure one that like when you're on national tv somebody's like why the hell are the Cavs wearing this jersey for the (laughs) the uniform so i i like them i think they're less is more is my philosophy and they're not as bad as the jazz so there's all (laughs) Thank God the Jazz released their oh. jerseys when they did because that was like everyone's comment was like, well, it couldn't get any worse than Utah, and that's all you need. That's a low bar. <laughs> that's a low bar. But the real question here, Corey, is are you actually going to consider buying one of these? If I had to buy one of them, I'd probably buy the white one. If I'm being, Man, I just not lo- if you had to. Are you going to buy one when <laughs> they come on sale? I'll probably buy the uh, root canal for you. Like, oh, I have to get one. <laughs> <laughs> when they come on sale and I can get my Dylan Windler clearance jersey in that new uniform, I'll buy that. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I know it's Isaac Okoro, but, I mean, you can always get the Kevin Durant Black 35 right there. You know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> buy it early. <laughs> buy it early. You prepare. There you go. There you go. Well, I think that'll about do it for tonight. As we tell you guys all the time, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can at it's Cavalier underscore pot on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and more. If you want to be added to the exclusive It's Cavalier Discord chat, you know what to do. Leave a rating, leave a review, send screenshot upset review to it's Cavalier53 at gmail.com, and we will personally invite you. Evan, big thanks for coming on again, man. Thanks for having me, fellas. Anytime. Sorry I'm always uh, – <laughs> Not most available. My schedule's just been hectic this summer, so it's finally starting to slow down for me, which is good. But basketball season picks back up in September-ish, so I have a little bit of a window. But yeah, anytime. Hey, man. We appreciate it. Anytime we can have you on. I know you're a busy guy. Alrighty, Caps fans. Have a good night. <laughs>